Welcome to Real Food Reads, the monthly podcast from Real Food Media, where we get to dive in deep with the authors of some of our favorite books on food, culture, and politics. I'm Tiffany Patton, and I'm so excited to be talking today with Paloma Martinez-Cruz, author of Food Fight, Millennial Mesasaje Meets the Culinary Marketplace. This collection of hard-hitting essays explores identity, power, and belonging in the U.S. through the lens of food. Let's start with the title of your book, Food Fight, Millennial Mestizaje Meets the Culinary Marketplace. Break down that title a little bit, starting with Mestizaje. Absolutely. Mestizaje refers to people who have blended Spanish and American Indian ancestry coming from the Spanish-speaking world or the um, Portuguese-speaking world. So the Iberian Americas blended, Native Americas blended with Iberian people. Mm -hmm. And it felt appropriate to me because I wanted the term that would let me describe the most people that I'm I'm dealing with. So Mm -hmm. It didn't seem appropriate to call it Mexican or Chicano or indigenous because I didn't want to block off really the diversity of the kinds of people who I'm looking at who are involved in the food provisioning system. Mm. And to food fights, often when I think of a food fight, I think of like that scene we've seen so many times in movies and TV shows of like a cafeteria food fight or a reality show pitting chefs against each other. But that is not what you mean. So Paloma, what is the food fight? Yeah, I'm kind of laughing to myself because <laughs> food fight, if, if you look at my um, relationship with my brother when we were kids, it, it can be literal. But uh, this refers to the opportunity that we have as eaters of food to make sure that we're voting with our choices that we make with our dollar, that we're making the most conscious ethical choices that we can make um, in our food provisioning system because we're making those choices every day, several times a day, every time we go into the market, every time we pop into a restaurant. So it's one of the most tangible and one of the most intimate and one of the closest ways for us to be engaged is to think about what we put in our bodies, what we spend our money on. Uh, So I think of that, like Food Fight, that's where we're going to be taking an important stand. Mm -hmm. And what I love about this is that it's not just about the choices that you're making for yourself. It's about the choices that you're making, like in who you're supporting that go beyond yourself and beyond your immediate family and your immediate community. It has like really far reaching impact. Absolutely. We're all connected. Mm -hmm. We're all connected. And I mean, I think about where the food comes from, who labored to produce it, what all of the transactions were, that let it arrive to us and what that means, what that means for for the kind of society that we live in. And I wanted to just uncover some of the blind spots around that. Yeah. So maybe that's the first or second page of the first chapter. You mention, um, just speaking to like the globalization of food and really of people, you mentioned how food is a safety zone. Can you tell us what you meant by that? It struck me when I came to the Midwest, I was living in Chicago for about seven years in a predominantly Mexican and Mexican-American neighborhood. But when I came to Ohio, it was a really different landscape. And culturally, I struggled, which is 
probably one of the reasons why I wrote the book that I did. You know, it was like a longing for food that felt dignified and that food spaces, restaurant spaces uh, that felt like they were somehow enhancing or promoting the dignity of the people of that food's origin. So I'm talking about Mexican food and how I think of these restaurants as contact zones. Mm-hmm. And what you're seeing is not how Mexican people celebrate their food traditions and share food, but you're seeing really a mockery of that that satisfies certain kinds of Anglo touristy types of appetites to think of Mexico as some place where you just go for the debauch, as is the case with like the Cinco de Drinco, Cinco mm-hmm. de Mayo style celebrations, or the defamatory menu items and the spaces that are quite cliche and and mocking, mm-hmm. you know, that that kind of sombrero ole salsification. It throws a lot of mock Spanish uh, and a lot of exaggerated cliche imagery into the mix Mm -hmm. so that when people who are not of Mexican or mestizo heritage are coming into these places, they're imagining that they've learned something about the culture. They're imagining that they've learned something about the food. And there's also this kind of quarantine of this is where Mexicanness belongs. Mm -hmm. It belongs as our entertainment it belongs as something that we mock when we're ready to go out for a birthday meal. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, there's also this anti-immigrant rhetoric on the not even on the rise, but well, maybe it is on the rise. It's been very clear and present for a very long time before Number Forty Five was elected. But there's yeah, this complete yeah. divorcing of love of people yeah. and love of food. You said this in your book. If only our bordered bodies could circulate as freely and exaltedly as burritos. If only our children were as beloved as our chalupas. Yeah, that's my gallows humor kicking Mm -hmm. in. But it really is looking at despair and frustration at the hypocrisy of the limited ways that our cultural work is appropriated Mm-hmm. while the people themselves are facing national rejection. And like you pointed out, this is an ongoing thing. But yes, also, the narrative is turning in a in a specific direction. Uh, and you find that with every administration, that the narrative shifts, like what they emphasize. Mm-hmm. So certainly with Trump, the discourse around building a wall and that they're rapists. And, you know, so so those kinds of things. Not that they weren't there before, but they're very blunt, and he um, has managed to really galvanize people around that bluntness and that overt hostility and the overt defamation. So with the popularity of Mexican food or Mexican-tinged or Mexican-inspired restaurants, I wanted to research what those contact zones were like in places that turned out overwhelmingly for Trump. So I did some of my research just going to these restaurants, understanding what the narratives of Mexican-ness were mm-hmm. and who was buying in and what did they think about it and what did the servers think? Because sometimes there are people of Mexican descent or Mexican immigrants who are doing the serving and the cooking. And, and I wanted to figure out what's going on here. So you mentioned this phrase that I hadn't heard before, culinary brown face. 
I think most people know what blackface is. It was yeah. a form of entertainment performed mostly by white people, blackening their faces and providing this like gross caricature of enslaved African-Americans. Mm-hmm. And Zora Neale Hurston pointed out what they were actually imitating were black imitations of white culture. So how does this relate to culinary brown face and what you found in your research in these places that you visited? It's culinary racism, right? Mm-hmm. To try and make obvious something that is so pervasive and so allowable. I'm urging people to consider, you know, what these things mean. What, for example, Frito Bandito or Chiquita Banana or the Speedy Gonzalez Combo Plate. What, what do these things mean? You know, a restaurant with the name Banditos. Like, what are you, what are people getting at? And by calling it culinary brownface, I'm looking at a few different layers of what's happening in these types of establishments. I'm looking at the way the food actually tastes because the food itself is an imitation of whites imitating Mexican food. So it's an imitation of Mexicans imitating white appetites Mm -hmm. in this country. Uh, We have cooks, uh, restaurateurs who come into the country and try to figure out how, for example, the California San Francisco style burrito, well, what is the construction worker or the fireman going to want? And making adjustments to the cuisine so that they satisfy what Mexican cooks imagine Anglo consumers desiring. Mm -hmm. So we're seeing that be once again imitated in these restaurants and called Mexican food, but it's really Mexi-Anglo adaptations from the get-go, like the chimichanga or the San Francisco style burrito or the margarita. All of these things were developed to appeal to Anglo consumers. Mm-hmm. And they're sold as being authentic Mexican culinary tradition. Yeah. It's also culinary brown phase and culinary racism in just the cliches that I've mentioned that you see. Um, you're going to just always see the blanket and yeah, I, the, the artwork mm-hmm. gets very bizarre. I have no <laughs> idea why you're seeing, like, you know, Don Quixote and Sancho Panza riding into the desert, you know, with a cluster of balloons. Or, I mean, it just gets very bizarre. You know, just like, hmm. Because I like tacky things. I'm like really intrigued by it. I'm like, hmm, would they sell that to me? (laughs) Like, let's take everything that we know about this culture, which is very little, throw it into one piece and add some like friendly elements to it that we will like. Yes, yes, yes. One place place I looked at in um, Lima, Ohio is called Banditos. And they say very proudly, better than authentic. And they have a, um, yeah, that's painted, I think, near their door. I think when you think about Mexico, culinarily, it's very diverse. And you're going to have different regions having different food items that are their particular stamp, their particular signature. So in these restaurants that are just basically trying to be a a chipotle type of thing, you know, having the imagery that's like a a tropical parrot uh, right (laughs) next to the cactus, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Yeah. Like a real, a real hodgepodge that is not really intelligible to Mexican regional pride and Mexican emblems of of the pride of their culinary traditions yeah. and their their regional symbolism. And dare I say it's actually not authentic? <laughs> I want to say 
these things happen because it's, it's easy to laugh at what folks mm-hmm. are getting wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And these are not folks with a lot of resources. These are not high-income towns. They're towns that have been devastated by economic policies, by disease loads, just literally mm-hmm. addiction and cancer and obesity. And so these are, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to punch down. I just right. want to say we need to do better and we need to understand how these people are voting in places, right? These are the contact zones. And they're mm-hmm. saying Mexicans are not allowable, but this one quarantined kind of Mexicanness is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this channel that they're comfortable opening and spaces where they're comfortable spending time, what are those spaces saying? What are they saying about Mexicans and Mexicanness? Mm-hmm. Right. And so that I feel like for people who are in these economically challenged and, and vulnerable places and living very precarious circumstances. I feel like these spaces are the places where they get to feel superior. Mm -hmm. They get to go and feel like they can look down on someone else. And even in places that are not economically disadvantaged, in those towns and the way that they're advertising Mm -hmm. and marketing their food, right? It's a caricature of different Mexican cultures and identities. Mm -hmm. Even in places here, like in the Bay Area where I'm at, you see this other sort of fetishization of the agricultural other. When you like walk into a coffee shop, you see all these images of farm workers on coffee plantations and all of a sudden this is how the people here like show that they are careful and they're ethical sourcers. So can you talk yeah. to us a little bit about the fetishization of the agricultural oh, totally. other? Mm-hmm. Yes. And if you don't mind, I want to back up just yeah. a second to talk about the other prong that's going on of these spaces where you find culinary brown face. Mm. I was saying, I don't want to just like punch down and, you know, kick these towns and and their inhabitants while they're down, right? Right. I also want to acknowledge that culinary brownface happens in other cities as well. Mm -hmm. It's not just a, you know, Rust Belt phenomenon in the Midwest. Because if you go to Mexico, if you go to Baja, California, you're going to find culinary brownface. There's a long relationship of Mexican businesses um, and Anglo businesses moving to Mexico that understand how profitable those colonial portrayals, those culinary brownface racist portrayals of Mexicanness is. Mm-hmm. There's a economic demand for it. So, yeah, I just wanted to point out that that is something that is not exclusive. And I don't want to scapegoat the towns out here in the Midwest mm-hmm. as really being the owners. This is something that is uh, pervasive. Mm-hmm. And to get to the fetishization of the agricultural other, I wanted to trace the coffee culture. You know, here I am in Ohio where I don't even think that the Latinx population reaches 5% at this point. Hmm. Stepping into coffee shops and seeing all white patrons or white presenting patrons and then seeing portraiture of indigenous agricultural workers. Mm-hmm. And I was troubled because they're saying something, right? To, to look at what culture is telling us, right? To look at what these spaces are narrating about ideology. Yeah, We're seeing people pay high prices if it's someplace like Starbucks 
they're paying a high price and there might be like one thing that's fair trade that they can buy there. And then you're looking at these portraits, you know, in many of the coffee shops. I know certainly the one that's closest to me, if I step into it, the first image I'll see of a person is going to be, you know, a woman who's gazing into the distance, mm-hmm. a, you know, pastoral type of indigenous dress. And we're supposed to imagine their contentment at our purchase mm-hmm. of a cup of coffee. We're supposed to imagine their contentment at being agricultural workers. And also, we're understanding that they belong in Latin America right. and patrons are white, right? right. While they uh, know their place, mm-hmm. you know, to put it in some crude terms, right? Like, they're great if they know their place. Right. Which is away from here and doing stoop labor. Mm-hmm. Again, it's just like a complete divorcing of context and reality and only taking what is literally and figuratively palatable. So like the mm-hmm. same thing happens while we're talking about agricultural workers, but not just in coffee. When we think about the farm to table movement here in the U.S., mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. really focus on the farmer who is often white and like really focus on the, the minimal transportation and packaging that happens and supporting your local farmer. But I think the farm to table movement is often missing out on some very important processes and people, the workers. And you get into this in what you and other folks are calling, instead of the farm-to-table movement, there's the farm-worker-to-table movement. Can you first tell us a little bit about the importance of mestizo farm labor to our food supply and also just the rampant injustices present? The overwhelming majority of agricultural workers in this country are of Latin American descent, somewhere between 70 and 80 percent at this point in the studies that I've looked at. Mm -hmm. And... Literally, our our food arrives to us on the labor of of their backs, of their 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 stoop labor, their picking labor. It's also the place where you're going to see incidents of, for example, modern day slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, you're going to see incidents of sexual harassment. I think the Fair Food Program, like the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, have been principal architects of the Fair Food Program, mm-hmm. which is so important for companies to sign on to. I think one of the shifts from the Cesar Chavez uh, labor movement is that they're looking at consumers and corporations to take responsibility for mm-hmm. the purchases because the growers, which is who Cesar Chavez was targeting and looking at, the growers also don't set the prices, right? right? So it's the growers who are also, in a sense, victims of the price point that the large corporations, right? Mm -hmm. Large grocery store chains. So the Coalition of Immokalee Workers and the Fair Food Program looks at these corporations and says, if you don't have a contract with Fair Food, if you haven't signed on to the Fair Food Program, you don't have the kinds of arbiters in place to make sure that people's rights and their wages are protected. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what I love about the CIW and the Fair Food Program is, again, like really putting workers first instead of focusing on like consumer taste. You mentioned, which I thought was really poignant, was just how much of these alternative food networks are really focused on consumer safety versus worker safety. Yes. If you think about the farm-to-table movement, for example, some of the main complaints you're going to have are, well, is it really fresh or how far away did it come or something dealing with the aesthetic of it mm-hmm. or the flavors of it and not the way that the workers are treated. 
that happens with organic as well, right? It's like, okay, I need to have it be organic. And then you'll hear a, a common criticism to people who are asking for organic are saying, well, you know, regular industrial agriculture, if something has been treated with pesticides, it's not going to kill you. But it will kill the people who are inhaling the pesticides, who are becoming sick, who are getting cancer, whose children are being born with birth defects. So to say people are not going to die from pesticides, they're really just talking about the consumer. Mm -hmm. They're really not counting the worker as people, right, in that category. Mm -hmm. And we can't ignore those circumstances and that our food supply is not just a harvest of food, it's also the harvest of empire. Mm. I feel like so many mechanisms for change and also like these alternative food networks, like you mentioned, they're really focused on our personal consumption instead of the workers. And do you think it's because the workers are so often black and brown or is it because capitalism has trained us to think of solutions only as it relates to our own personal consumption? Yeah, I think all of the above. Mm -hmm. There has always been in this country a labor force in agriculture that was considered to be beneath Mm -hmm. the level of enfranchised citizens. When you think about, you know, enslaved Africans who did the stoop labor, who did the agricultural work, Mm -hmm. right? When you think about immigrant labor, which was a disenfranchised body of people who were seen as being the scourge of society. So to act like migrant laborers are somehow taking a job Anglo-Americans have always wanted, that's really erasing history, mm-hmm. right? To, to imagine that there was always this healthy, happy Anglo workforce of enfranchised citizens who were really, really wanting those jobs. That's just not how labor and corporate you know, industrial agriculture have ever worked. So big agriculture definitely relies on a body of laborers that have been deprived of their rights Mm -hmm. and their agency as denizens, right, Mm -hmm. of this country, as necessary participants and as recruited participants Mm -hmm. in this country's economy, right? So uh, there's a lot of circulation of of myths about how United States labor has actually worked. Right. You know, there's all this made up like, ah, oh, we used to be pure. I'm like, well, you're talking actually about slavery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's when Americans had those jobs. Mm-hmm. I think that the the white elites have always found ways to make sure that the people doing those jobs were put into some sort of subhuman category. Mm-hmm. If it was slaves or illegal alien, there's a lot of equivalency between those two mythologies. Yeah, so there's this complete false narrative around the labor and the food system and completely ignoring Mm -hmm. the fact that our food system is entirely dependent on all of these workers. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think part of the thing that feeds into that narrative is just the physicality of the jobs themselves because Mm -hmm. farm workers are hidden in fields or people Mm -hmm. who are in the food system are hidden behind like factory doors so we can't see them. Yes, absolutely. And you mentioned the Columbus effect, mm-hmm. which I think is made possible by all of this, quote unquote, like hidden work that we don't see. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the Columbus effect and some examples yes. of it. 
Yeah, uh, Maria Elena Cepeda, and I believe it was when she was talking about music, right? Musical crossover, musical phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Somebody who is maybe in the Latin music chart who then, quote-unquote, crosses over into the pop chart. The Columbus effect is when whites seem content with having discovered something. When we're talking about something that existed for a long time and of which there are you know, no shortage of authority figures, they imagine that they have rescued or saved or discovered a tradition. When somebody white has grabbed it and somehow been able to put their name on it and make profit from it, that's when it's considered to have been discovered or crossed over or mainstreamed or something like that. So something that people don't consider is just how violent, really, the Columbus effect is. Like, Columbus actually was really violent. So is the Columbus effect. Yes, uh, it is and was. And it's clear that this is something we need to point out, especially in light of the kinds of national rejection that mestizo bodies and Mexican people are experiencing. Mm -hmm. We cannot tolerate for this to happen We need to make sure that we're holding these conversations at the time that we're celebrating the strides, I think, that uh, Mexican cuisine is is taking and and, and gaining, you know, some some different kinds of spaces. But we also, you know, need to hold the conversation to an ethical standard about what it means for people like the privileged male white chef to constantly be slapping his name on things that he learned from. Mm-hmm. Mexican women in Mexico, right. you know, what are they saying, right. right? What are they saying about where they learned it? How are they respecting the people that they've received this tradition from? Mm-hmm. How humble are they? How are they paying back? Mm-hmm. I point out to people that there's so many ways to give back. So I feel like part of what you're saying is some of the work that responsible, ethical like consumers and people should just be doing is try to always add context when we're trying to decolonize any sort of like food or pathway, one okay. step of that is because it's been so divorced from its context is always adding that context back in. I just like to say like the ABCs of white supremacy, which is always be colonizing. But yeah. like maybe the like opposite of that is always be like contextualizing, add that context back in. Yeah, always be decolonizing. Uh, yeah, add the knowledge back in. Mm-hmm. Add the knowers back in, mm-hmm. right? Don't let somebody, you know, who doesn't belong to that culture erase all of the knowers and say that they're the only one that saved it, you know, putting the knowers back in, putting the traditions back in, putting the respect back in, Mm -hmm. right? Also asking. I mean, I think that you can ask a local coffee shop to carry fair trade. I think you can ask them to, you know, like reconsider what imagery they're saying represents their business Mm -hmm. or ask them to, You know, if they have that working hipster taco place and it's making a lot of money, it's like, well, what about contributing to a person of color or a woman to go to culinary school? Right. What about an academic scholarship? Mm -hmm. What about helping to fund study abroad for some student? So, I mean, there's a lot of ways that they can give back. And I have a whole bunch of ways that they can give back. That's awesome. (laughs) Right? Support the sanctuary movement in our city. Yeah. So that while you're making millions on hipster tacos, you can create an alliance, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't just turn your back on the realities of national rejection 
that Mexican people are experiencing. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I really loved about this book as I was reading it was that it felt very much like a political economy of mestizaje identity through the lens mm-hmm. of food. And it just mm-hmm. there was like so much about identity in here, right? Like who defines it, mm-hmm. who profits off of it, and how it's being honored and reclaimed. You give this example of powerful reclamation of identity in Homegirl Cafe in L.A. For those who don't know, Homegirl Cafe is a restaurant, bakery, and urban farm that offers training programs to formerly incarcerated or high-risk gang-involved young women. And it ends mm-hmm. up like providing a pipeline to possibility instead of prison. And so when you take it at its face, it's a highly effective diversion and anti-recidivism program, but it's yeah. so much more than that. So can you tell us about the powerful reclaiming of identities that take place there? Yes, that chapter is a little different mm-hmm. uh, than the other ones because I was trying to figure out how to write a productive love letter to Homeboy Industries and Homegirl Cafe. Mm-hmm. So with Homegirl, it's a little bit of a, of a shift in position to saying, well, how can we sustain this? You know, their slogan is jobs, not jails. And they grew into the most important gang diversion program in the country. And they are studied internationally for what it is that they do for young people, at-risk people, people who are recovering from incarceration, you know, giving them a step, retraining them, refocusing their energy. And then taking pride in that, in the 80s and 90s, it was very much like cholos or homies were the scourge Mm -hmm. of the city. And this really is transforming it and saying, homies are the providers, right? Homegirl Cafe, these are people who are growing food and serving food. And then they were embraced by the city and Father Greg Boyle was embraced by the city as being like the identity of the city and the providers and the people who were nurturing the city and giving back to the city through this particular recovery and diversion model. Mm-hmm. And the food is so good. I don't know if you've had the chance <laughs> to actually go to Homeboy Industries, but you sit there and then the people who are serving are all in the training program. They're participating in the program and they're going to tell you their stories and just be offering who they are. We talk about contact zone, right? It's mm-hmm. this incredible interface from people who are interested in going there to eat And then the people who are actually in the program who are going to be, you know, everywhere doing the work and learning how to take pride in who they are, like rooted in Angelino vibe, coming from economic disadvantages, psychological disadvantages like trauma, learning to really take stock of who they are and take pride and grow from there, not grow away from there, which I think is a radical thing. You think about upward mobility pathways to life transformation the tendency is to show uh, maybe a homegirl from the streets and then show her progress into somebody who's like in a business suit or selling real estate or something like that. You don't really get to see the homegirl be intact and seen as somebody who is whole and who is contributing within her homegirlness. That's, that's beautiful. Yeah. I had such a nice time talking with you, Paloma. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, well, thank you. It was an absolute pleasure and privilege to talk with you, Tiffany. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Real Food Reads. Check out realfoodmedia.org for the complete list of episodes and also a new book club organizing guide for ways to engage more deeply with the readings or the podcasts, whether you have a book club or not.